This morning is a very difficult and challenging topic, and I've been praying a great deal, and some of you have been praying with me. Uh, There is a resource list on the Welcome Center in the lobby uh, related to this sermon series on twisted love, family secrets, lies, and heartaches. Um, It's not only book resources, it's also TED Talks, it's also uh, some uh, other material online, it's also some community and national contact information, websites, and phone numbers uh, to deal with domestic violence, abuse, assault, and those topics. And in addition this morning, I want you to remember that all of these sermons are online. Uh, Last week's, today's, and next week's, you may follow up. And because this morning's topic is really difficult, uh, I've enlisted some pastoral counselors, trained pastoral counselors, members of our congregation, to be in the lobby during the service because It's been my experience that when these difficult topics are addressed, sometimes it just becomes a little overwhelming to hear if you've dealt with or are a victim of these particular issues and you'd like a little more privacy. uh, They'll be in the lobby if you want to do some visiting with them during the sermon. If you'd like to listen with a little more silence and isolation, uh, they'll be out there to help and they'll also be there during the response time, our invitation, and even after the service. Uh, They have... uh, bright lime green uh, name tags on so you can identify them because we want to make every possible resource available. In addition, I'm available after the service or this week uh, as you might need to contact me. I would like for us to turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel, the 13th chapter, and I want to read a very disturbing and painful passage of Scripture uh, about the rape of Tamar Uh, The house of David was not in order. King David himself had committed grievous sins, and it seems like the sowing of that seed uh, brought a harvest of painful experience. And right before I read this 2 Samuel 13 text, I'd like for you to bow with me for a moment of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your presence always and for the promise that your word never comes back to you void but always accomplishes that which you please. And so we pray that today you will help us as we deal with a very difficult subject, as we think about love that sometimes gets twisted and confused and our relationship struggles. We remember today those who are struggling in Hawaii with the terrible volcanic activity, and we pray that you would keep them safe and be with first responders. We pray for those impacted by the violence and the shootings Uh, the shooting in Santa Fe, Texas this week at the school, that you would comfort those who are dealing with trauma, who are grieving, that you would bless them and care for them in a special way. We thank you today for the promise that the Holy Spirit has come, that the Holy Spirit is among us, and that God, uh, that Holy Spirit gives us boldness to bear witness to our faith, also comforts us in our terrible and extreme pain, And that Holy Spirit, who helped author Scripture, will guide us in the understanding of Scripture. Guide our thoughts and our words, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And now, if you're able, please stand as God's Word comes among us as I read from 2 Samuel in the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 1. Some time passed, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, And David's son Amnon fell in love with her. Amnon was so tormented 
that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimeah. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. And prepare the food in my sight so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and set them out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber so that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made, brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not force me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the scoundrels in Israel. Now therefore I beg you, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. Amnon said to her, get out. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for this was how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. But Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she was wearing. She put her hand over her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Research shows that in the United States, one in every four girls will be sexually assaulted or abused by the age of 17. One in four. Look around you this morning and do the math. And that's not even counting young males who are abused. One in four. And yet we know it's not a new problem. We know that sexual assault and abuse have existed since time immemorial. The scripture that we just read is a classic classic example with amazing psychological insights. Amnon was the crown prince, first in line to succeed King David. No doubt spoiled, no doubt he felt entitled. He lusted after his half-sister, his half-sister Tamar. He devised this ruse, this plan 
that you just heard read uh, this, this elaborate scheme to force her, and, and he forced her and she resisted, and she appealed to him to respect her, which he said no. She appealed to him to respect himself. He said, no, I'm not interested. She appealed for him to respect the greatest traditions of Israel's faith and ethics, and he rejected that. He overwhelmed her with his strength. And there were, and there were no witnesses. Now, in an amazing flash of psychological insight, the narrator shares with us something fascinating. Almost immediately after the deed was done, Amnon suddenly despises her more strongly than he had ever lusted after her. His lust turned into disgust because he was projecting his guilt and shame on her. And interestingly enough, he begins to act like the injured party, the one who was wronged. Now, we know from research and lots of interviews that the way that a, an assailant, a, a perpetrator of sexual violence, controls the victim primarily is in two ways, by shaming and blaming the victim and by isolating the victim. And certainly, Amnod did that without ever taking a psychology course. He shamed her and he blamed her. It was all her fault. She was disgusting to him. And he knew that in the social structure of the, of the day, she would be isolated. We probably don't capture, uh, just at surface level, the degree of isolation that Tamar would now experience. Because, you see, the king's daughters, his unmarried daughters, lived in a special place with extra special security, and you can understand that because an enemy kingdom, the quickest way to get the king to cave to some sort of extortion would be to kidnap one of his virgin daughters. And so the king's daughters were kept under lock and key in a very special place. Now Tamar, because of what had happened to her, would be cut off from her sisters, she'd be cut off from her parents, She'd be cut off from all of her privileges, all of her sense of safety, all of her security, all of her future. The scripture says that Tamar ripped her clothing, put ashes on her head, the tradition that was followed when one had experienced a death because she was trying to say something died inside of her, her hope her plans for a future. And if you've ever talked to someone who's a victim of sexual assault, you can, you can finally eventually hear them talk about the fact that they feel like their future has been stolen from them. And it, as if Tamar needed more heartache in this social structure, the two men whom she probably loved the most both failed her. Scripture indicates that she was very close to her full brother, Absalom. She told Absalom what had happened. And Absalom would later do something that was inappropriate to vindicate it. That's next Sunday's sermon. But all Absalom did at the moment, it's in the very next verse, 
after I quit reading in verse 19, it's in verse 20, all Absalom said was, are you ready for this? Don't take it to heart, sister. Get over it. Don't make it a big deal. Really? That's what, that's what he said to her. And the other man who was the most significant in her life, her father, King David, he found out about it and he did this much. Absolutely zero, nothing. Didn't punish Abnon, Amnon, did not discipline him, did not listen to his daughter's story, did not uh, look for a way for her to have support. He was so indulgent of his oldest son that he simply was paralyzed and did nothing. Experts tell us that the two things that victims of assault and abuse need the most are for their stories to be heard and for them to have allies, supportive people around them. And both of those were taken away from Tamar. She was totally on her own. And as uh, Tony Cartledge has said in a Bible commentary on 2 Samuel, he said, David did nothing to Amnon and he did nothing for Tamar. She was on her own. Now the research on what is experienced inside victims of sexual assault and abuse, whether it's child abuse or sexual abuse as as adults, there's sort of a a checklist of things that researchers and interviewers and therapists have found. I want to show you on the screen what goes on inside the mind and heart of a victim. There is shame, somehow getting past the idea that it's their fault. There is uh, self-blame and guilt. There is self-criticism, not only about what happened, but they begin to second-guess themselves about everything in life and to criticize themselves harshly, a sense of betrayal, enormous anger that seems to have no place uh, to, to be placed, and then alienation, that sense of being all alone without allies, without agency, without anyone to support or strengthen. Years ago, I visited with a woman who lived far, far away from her, uh, far away from here, who had endured years and a couple of decades of serial abuse by one man in a work situation. And she finally got the courage to step away from it and get help. But she told me that her therapist said, your mind does not have a category for this cruelty that's done to you. Think of your mind as having file folders. Something sad happens, you your mind puts it in that folder. Something joyous happens, your mind puts it in another folder. Something that, that makes you afraid, you put it in another folder. Something that makes you bold and confident, you put it in another folder. And the therapist said, there is no category, there is no file folder for what happens to a victim of sexual assault and abuse. And that therapist went on to say that abuse actually alters brain chemistry. That actually new and different things happen to the brain of a person who is attacked. 
Last week I shared with us a passage of Scripture from the Psalms, and I want to show it to you again and remind you that one of the great promises of God's love is, says the Lord, Psalm 12, 5, I place them in safety for which they long. Remember we talked about how everyone longs for safety. And biblically, every person created in the image of God is entitled to safety. We have the right to feel safe. We have the right to feel not in danger, not assaulted. We have that, that right by, by God because of God's great love. That's God's intention for us. And interestingly enough, in my research uh, on this topic, I was reading uh, some uh, by a therapist who has written a book about surviving trauma. And she lists three things that have to happen in the life of a victim for them to begin to live again. And the very first thing she lists is safety. Safety. That sense that we're okay. That that thing that we teach children about good touch and bad touch, about the power that each person has to give permission, that our bodies are God's gifts and we have the power of, of permission, the power of consent, whoever we are. The second thing the authors talked about was space to remember and mourn. And we've already talked about that, how there must be, this is where the church comes in. This is one of the reasons I'm preaching on this topic, to get over the taboo, to be able to talk about these things and say these words among the fellowship of Christ followers, to give space for people to mourn and to remember, because it's only when we mourn and remember that we are ever given power to get well. Without the mourning and remembering, We will never heal emotionally, we will never heal mentally, and in many cases we will never heal physically until that mourning and that remembering takes place. And the third thing that the author mentioned was reconnection, in her words, reconnection with ordinary life, and I've I've tweaked that a little bit, reconnection with life and with community. If sexual assault and abuse are the cruelest thing that could happen to a person, the only counterweight to that cruelty is compassion. The only counterweight to that cruelty is compassion. And if there should be one place in the world where there is an abundance of compassion, it should be Christ's church. Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, just keeps pumping compassion in us and through us to share with broken lives. And in that experience, we begin to remember what Jesus did and how he treated women, who, and the way he treated women was against social norms. How he treated powerless children, again, against social norms of his time. The way he treated the disadvantaged and the powerless, again, against the social norms and the religious norms of his time. This spirit of Jesus is in us and through us, and through the love and compassion of Christ, we say to victims, this wasn't your fault. It's not your fault. There is hope. There's healing. You can survive, as Lori sang. You through Jesus Christ, the crucified one who endured the ultimate from bullies 
you can survive. And the other piece of this is, I'm looking for the church of Jesus Christ to make stronger partnerships with community and state agencies that are there to help. They have resources that are beyond our ability, but we have spiritual resources that are beyond their ability. And when we partner with them to protect lives and to bring healing to lives, wonderful things can happen in the reconnecting with life and the reconnecting with community. Through Christ, we can build those bridges of partnership. When my uh, younger brother was little, he had a uh, favorite doll, uh, a little stuffed panda bear, black and white, about, about that big. And uh, he named it the panda doll Andy Panda. I think there was a cartoon uh, at that time, uh, Andy Panda. And Dennis loved Andy Panda. Andy Panda went everywhere Dennis went. And uh, he, he loved him, played with him, had a lot of fun. And then one day, the family dog got a hold of Andy Panda and rearranged his anatomy. <laughs> Worked him over pretty good. And Dennis just cried and cried and cried. I'd never seen him so heartbroken. And bless my dear mother's heart, she started working her magic with the sewing machine and with needle and thread. And she worked and she stitched and she found some more stuffing and she worked some more and she gave Andy Panda back to Dennis a few stitches and maybe his jaw looked like this. But Dennis didn't care. Andy Panda was whole again. And sometimes things happen to us over which we have no control and they rip us to shreds. And it may be something we can't even talk about to other people. But through the love of Jesus Christ, we can get stitched back together. The stitching may still show. The scars may still be there. But we will survive. We will survive. I was visiting once with a pastor friend who was in his 60s and was just then coming to grips with his own abuse as a child. He'd blocked it out. He'd mashed it down. He talked to me one day and he just poured his heart out and he said, as painful as it is to open those doors from the past, I find that when I open those doors, after the pain comes release, And he said, the most amazing thing, Doyle, is when I open those doors to the past, God's already there. God's there waiting for me with his healing love.